Once upon a time, a little dove was sent to confront a monster fish out in the desert. The monster fish hated the dove and everything the dove represented. In fact, the monster fish had devoured many of the family and friends of the dove and even destroyed their dwelling places. The monster fish was power-hungry, sex-crazed, and money-loving. And it acquired all of these things through violence and deceit. Nevertheless, the maker sent the dove to the monster with a message in his mouth and gave him three days to cry out that message. So the dove went to the monster to cry the cry that was put in his mouth. But when the monster fish saw the little dove, it swallowed him up. But from the heart of the monster, the dove began to cry. And this is what it sounds like when dove cries. <laughs> monster fish, change gonna come. You're going to be turned over in 40 days. In 40 days, you'll go belly up. When the monster heard this cry, it was terror stricken. It turned over in the dust and wept. It turned over in the ashes and cried. It turned to the maker and prayed. And the maker changed his mind about the fish. Because the fish had changed his mind about the maker. And against all odds... The monster fish was overthrown by a little dove. The monster fish changed and became as peaceful as a dove, but the dove changed and became as hateful and as forceful as the monster fish. This is the story of Jonah in Nineveh. God's dove and the serpent's fish. After all, Jonah means dove and Nineveh idolized the icons and the images of fish. Now, how did all of this change come about? Well, the change came about through preaching, of all things. Through preaching. Not disembodied podcasts, not spiritualized infomercials, not therapeutic pep talks, but real preaching. Embodied preaching life-on-life life preaching, incarnational preaching. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us in a preacher kind of preaching. That's how all this change came about. Jesus says that Jonah was assigned to the people of Nineveh. That means he was a sacramental image of God's Word in the flesh. He walked the streets, he cried in the marketplaces, he talked to the city folk, he stood in the public square, testified to real people, and preached the gospel with words and works. He was a sign of God's word among the people, among sinners, among sinners facing judgment. Preaching seems like such an insufficient an ineffectual means of reaching people, especially in the 21st century. Especially in the 21st century. Aren't there less boring and more effective means of reaching people? Aren't there better methods out there, like the visual arts or mass media or social work or political activism, social media platforms? Surely there is a better way than preaching. 
But God says, no, preaching changes hearts. Preaching changes minds. Preaching changes lives. And there was a time when the church believed that. Not so much anymore, but there was a time when the church believed that preaching changes the world. That notwithstanding, the Spirit says that preaching is the ordinary means that God uses to accomplish extraordinary things like seeking and saving the lost. God's messengers are sent as his ambassadors, and he makes his appeal to people through their preaching. And God is pleased to save all who believe the foolishness of preaching, including people like you. As it is written, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, that means made right with God, declared to be innocent of sin, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And you know as well as I do that that is good news. But the question is, how will anyone call on the Savior whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As a rule, and there are exceptions to the rule, but as a rule, without a preacher, they will not confess and they cannot believe. So God sends them preachers. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So God sends preachers because without preachers, the world perishes. God sent Jonah to preach in Nineveh to cry that it would be overthrown very soon. But what does the word overthrow mean here? The Hebrew word for overthrown is deliberately ambiguous. It means something will be changed, or something will be turned over, or something will be overturned, or even destroyed. It means that change is coming. For better or for worse, you'll have to wait and see. The Ninevites assume the worst, and so they assume that overthrow means destroyed. And so what do they do? They overturn their ways. They change their ways and hope that God will overturn his ways towards them. Jonah is preaching and crying out for judgment against Nineveh, but Nineveh is crying out to God for mercy. And God, who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and who relents from disaster, hears their, their cries, sees their actions, sees their repentance. And what does he do? He relents because they repented. Why? Because God loves the world. God loves the world. He loves sinners. He loves the people in cities and towns. He loves the world. So God sends Jonah to Nineveh because he loves the world. He is a sign of God's love to that city. 
And since God does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance, he sends preachers like Jonah to warn and to woo sinners. He sends preachers like Jonah to win and to welcome saints. But keep in mind that until Jonah showed up in Nineveh, the people of Nineveh were not saints. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. They were, in fact, held captive by the devil to do his will. But God grants them repentance through the preaching of Jonah. And it is through that repentance that they come to a knowledge of the truth. They come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. And then, by God's grace, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed the preaching of Jonah. And the word of the Lord spread throughout that whole city. Now we might ask, why in the world was Jonah's message so powerful and effective among the Ninevites? What made that very brief sermon, not even a homily, so powerful and effective? What made it effectual unto salvation? Was it something about the prophet Jonah? His appearance? His battle scars, the fact that he had survived three days in a giant fish. Was it his winsome smile and charismatic personality? Was it his rhetorical skills and his heartwarming illustrations? No. None of the above. Remember that Jonah is a reluctant missionary. And he preaches to Nineveh with resentment and regret in his heart. He cannot stand the Ninevites. So maybe it was something about the people. Was it Nineveh's openness to spiritual things? Was it that they were seeking to fill that God-shaped hole in their heart? Were they curious about the true and living God, hoping that someday they could discover who he is? No. Keep in mind that Nineveh plunged itself into sin and indulged in the world, the flesh, and the devil. They were not seeking the Lord. They were worshiping idols. They were not seeking God's people. They were seeking to destroy them. They were not striving for peace and unity. They were wreaking havoc on the world. They're a violent and bloody people. Deceiving, not seeking the truth. They're not seeking the Lord, but the Lord was seeking them. And they found the Lord because he found them first. So preaching is made effectual unto salvation, not because of anything in the preacher and not because of anything in the audience of the preacher, but because of the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. Read the story again. And you will note that the unseen and the unnoticed and the underrated character in this story is none other than the Holy Spirit. He's at work. The Spirit is the true dove that comes down from heaven to change lives on earth. The Spirit convicts the world of sin and converts sinners to God. The Spirit comforts us and conforms us to the image of Christ. His invisible work is true. And real work. The Spirit changes hearts and changes lives. The Spirit changes the world through the ordinary means of grace. 
like preaching and like prayer and like the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The Spirit is always at work. And the Spirit is the secret ingredient, the invisible character that's always working. It is said that Charles Spurgeon, when he would ascend the pulpit to preach, would pause on every step on his way up and say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. For fear of uttering any word from the pulpit that did not come from the mouth of God. In this emotionally charged story before us today, a dove confronts a monster and hearts are changed both in heaven and on earth for better and for worse. The heart of God is changed in heaven towards the Ninevites and the hearts of the Ninevites are changed on earth towards God and that change is for the better. But the heart of Jonah, the heart of Jonah is changed for the worse. What is Jonah's problem? Shouldn't he be rejoicing? He has just preached the shortest sermon in the history of sermons. And he has just witnessed the biggest revival in the history of revivals through that short sermon. And yet he is angry. He's angry. And why is he angry? He's angry enough to leave the city. He's angry enough to go out east. He's angry enough to die. That's how angry he is. All of my children are now young adults in their 20s. But when they were little, Sprouts, my wife and I used to read all kinds of books to them. And one of my favorite books came from a series by Mercer Mayer. The Little Critter series. Anyone? In one of the books called, I Was So Mad, Little Critter goes full-on Jonah rage mode throughout the whole book. And towards the end, he even sounds like Jonah as he is so mad, he packs his wagon and favorite toys and his cookies to eat on the way. Why? What is the explanation? I was so mad, he says. His anger drove him to say and do things that hurt himself and hurt others around him. The same thing happens with Jonah the prophet. He is so mad and so blinded by anger that he doesn't even realize that the dove has become a monster while the monster has become a dove. What's his problem? Well, some say his problem was his nationalism. That he believed that God was the God of Israel only. And that other nations did not have any right to God. And they did not deserve God's mercy. The only thing they deserved from God was his wrath. Others say it was Jonah's racism. That he showed partiality and favoritism to the Jewish people. To people like him. And that he was against non-Jewish people who were different from him. People who he considered to be common, profane, and unclean. And yet, when Jonah preached to his own people, according to the book of Kings, when he preached to his own people, 
They refused to listen to him. And then he goes out to these unclean, profane people, preaches the shortest sermon ever. And everyone from top to bottom, from the king to the pauper, heeds his word. Some say his problem was his egotism. That he believed that preaching to such wicked people and mortal enemies of Israel was utterly beneath him. That it was a massive blow to his pride to be sent out of his own homeland to a distant land to the enemies of God's people. There might be some truth in all of those things. But I want to draw your attention to what Jonah actually said about his anger and where he actually explains why he's so angry. In this story, Jonah tells on himself. In Jonah 4, verse 2, he confesses in prayer that his problem is actually deeply theological. Maybe it's his Calvinism. Since God already knows those who are his, why in the world would he even bother sending me to preach to these people? Or maybe it was his Arminianism. Since whosoever will may come, why do I even need to get involved at all? It's up to each and every person to decide for themselves. They don't need me. Or maybe it was some other ism that he was hiding behind. That's what we do with our isms. We use them as excuses to not do God's will or to get engaged in God's mission. We get to hide behind our systematic theology, just like Jonah. So whatever you want to call it, Jonah's problem, according to Jonah, is rooted and grounded in his theological convictions. The core set of truths that Jonah believed about God is the reason he gives for his anger. He prays to the Lord and says, O Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? While I was still in my house when you called me, I knew this was going to happen. This is why I went the other way to the other end of the earth from Nineveh. I didn't want anything to do with this. And here's what he explains. Because I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I just knew what you were going to do. And again, this is also what it sounds like when Dove cries. If I'm angry, it's your fault. I knew what was going to happen. You send me all this way to overthrow Nineveh, to change the city, but I know that you never really intended to destroy them like they deserve. You intended to deliver them. I know you. I know your character. I know what you're made of. And that's why I wanted nothing to do with this mission. I knew you were going to save them, and I don't want them to be saved. I want you to go scorched earth, smoke them down, and snuff them out. That's just not who you are. They should have hell to pay for what they have done to this world. And here you are, showing them compassion, showing them mercy, 
extending grace, I'm tapping out. You see, unlike the Lord, Jonah was quick to get angry, quick to speak, and slow to listen. As my wife has so patiently and graciously reminded her sometimes grumpy and angry husband, a man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. But here we have Jonah, quick to anger, unlike the Lord who is slow to anger. Jonah, with all of his pride and prejudice, represents Israel with all of her pride and prejudice. From the beginning, Israel was called to be a light to the nations. Not a light to scatter people, but a light to attract people. A light to gather them to the Lord. But they kept the light to themselves. God loved the world, but his people hated it. They hid the light under the bushel of their politics and religion. They wrapped the light in the flag of their nationalism and pride. And over time, they became more and more separatist. They were exceptional. They were separatists from the nations rather than set apart for the life of the world. And this sectarian attitude that we see here was institutionalized and formalized by their religious leaders and by their political rulers. And it carries through all the way to the time of Jesus and the apostles. And it takes God coming in the flesh to show his people what it truly means to be the light of the nations for the life of the world. If you want something done right, you got to do it yourself, right? And so God does it himself. Jesus comes as the embodiment of divine love for the world. He is the word made flesh, the gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster, God in the flesh. And he sends his people on mission to the world as a light for the nations, to make disciples of all nations, of all peoples and tribes and languages by baptizing them with water and by teaching them his word. Why? To show them the love of God. To show the world that God loves the world. But like Israel, we can be stubborn of heart, slow to understand, and slow to obey. Even the apostles had trouble grasping Jesus' universal scope of vision for the nations. Or better put, Jesus' heart for the world. Initially, when Peter was sent to take the gospel to non-Jewish people, he resisted. He resisted. His attitude towards non-Jewish people like us was the same as Jonah's attitude towards Nineveh. But it was the Spirit of God that changed his mind and changed his heart. He was converted by the gospel of Jesus Christ to love the world as God loves the world. One of my favorite stories is in the book of Acts where Peter, who is also known as Simon, the son of Jonah, opens his mouth and confesses to a Roman centurion the mortal 
political enemy of his people, of his nation, and of his church. This is what he says. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And he commanded us to preach to all the people and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. There is one judge and it is not you. There is one judge, and it is not Jonah. There is one judge of the living and the dead, and it is not your pastor. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Our job is not to predetermine who gets in or who gets out. Our mission is to gather people and present them to the Lord Jesus Christ and let him sort it out. Our mission is to show the world that God loves the world. And the message of God to the world in his love is believe and receive. Repent and I'll relent. Anyone, everyone who hears the gospel. Anyone, everyone who hears the story of God's love. It's for you. It's for them. It's for us. God loves the world. And we need to love the world as God loves the world. You want to see your world change? You want to see the lives of people around you change? Love them as God loves them. Because what the world needs now is love, sweet love. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray.